Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a wonderful show for you this evening. Captain Brian Udell, the man who survived ejecting at supersonic speed from his F-15 fighter, is here. And there is so much to this story, even beyond that and all his uh, life's accomplishments. I can't wait to get to his story. Before we get started, just a few things. First of all, we are just now kicking off the beginning of our new Fly to Win Challenge, and we are giving away an Aspen E5 electronic flight instrument. You can put glass in your panel for free just by winning the Fly to Win Challenge. It's all free. It's so easy. All you have to do is get the Social Flight mobile app for your Apple or Android device and just check in at any airport. You give points every time you check in somewhere, and it's not a winner-take-all contest. You just have to be part of it to be entered into our drawing to win. If you do happen to get enough points to be on our leaderboard, well, then you get an extra entry in the drawing, raising your chances of winning. Socialflight.com and the free Social Flight mobile apps have tens of thousands of aviation events, destinations, so many cool things going on, and that Fly to Win Challenge. And we just gave away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset that uh, was part of our June 1st prize, and uh, that went um, uh, to a gentleman uh, out in the Sheridan Pilots Association. JT Granger won that. Uh, so it, it, there are real people all over the country, and you could win as well. Tonight's broadcast is brought to us by Lightspeed Aviation and their new Delta Zulu safety wearable headset. And that includes the Canary carbon monoxide detection system that's built into the headset. I've personally used this and had it go off, discovered an exhaust problem that we fixed on the aircraft. So this thing really works. And in addition to that, it includes their hearing equity built-in audio equalization system that ensures crystal clear flight communication that's tailored to your specific hearing needs. You take a test on their app, it goes through and checks your hearing. It's very, very cool. And that is part of the Lightspeed Delta Zulu headset. And we're so thankful for their support of Social Flight, making all of this possible. And now to tonight's guest. Captain Brian Udell is most widely known for his harrowing story of ejecting from an F-15 fighter flying at well over 800 miles per hour. And we're gonna hear about that from him tonight. However, the story and accomplishments of Brian Udell go far beyond this dramatic ejection and heroic recovery. Brian has been passing aviation milestones since he began flying. He began flying at only nine years old. He took his first cross country at 10. He soloed at 16 and received his private pilot certificate at age 17. Since that time, he has accumulated over 22,000 hours in a variety of, civil, of both civil and military aircraft. Brian was top of his class among the initial group of pilots selected to fly the F-15 Strike Eagle. He's go, he went on to become, become an instructor, a mission commander, an air-to-ground Top Gun winner, he has flown over 100 combat missions in Southwest Asia and logged nearly 2,000 hours in the Strike Eagle. 
I'm going to bring Brian on the line right now. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Captain Brian Udell. How are you doing, Brian? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm so excited. Uh, you know, you, your story is inspirational in so many ways. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's not, it's not just about this, this unique and, and horrifying experience that you had having to eject. It is so much about your life and your family story. So you come from a long, uh, from a line uh, of aviation uh, folks and, and, and a history with military service. Tell me about how this started. Tell me about your dad. Well, I'd, I'd first like to start that you, you don't survive something like this without being prepared. And that preparation started when I started flying at age nine. My father was my instructor and he, he had a certain way of doing things. Uh, obviously at age nine, I'm, and the airplane that I learned to fly in was a Cessna 190. Can you imagine a nine-year-old being able to see over the dash of a Cessna 190? No, and I couldn't. I don't, it doesn't matter how many Houston phone books I put underneath me, it wasn't going to get me up to that level. So his remedy to that was to teach me instruments right off the bat. So that's when I took my first instrument, my first cross country was actually an instrument cross country, and I'm tuning radials and, and dialing in frequencies, and I'm flying from VOR to VOR to VOR. At and age 10? kind of dozing off at age 10. <laughs> and that's just the way my dad taught. He goes, well, he, you know, he doesn't know any different. And he just, and I'm, I'm just, a, was a very kind of obedient boy when it came to, you know, hey, do this, okay. And it's, it's kind of a, a dad pleasing thing, you know. You're trying to, you know, make your father happy, right? You're trying to do things correctly, and, and um, he was, he was, he was a hammer. And uh, there were days that I'd get frustrated, and then as I progressed through my training, I realized uh, one day distinctly. Uh, he and I were flying along and he, he wasn't saying anything. And I, I thought, are you, are you not feeling well? And he goes, no, I'm fine. He goes, well, why aren't you talking? And he says, because you're doing it right. And so after that, my whole goal in life was to keep him, his mouth shut. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned about doing, getting used to instruments early on. I've noticed that you know, when I th went through my training, it was all white knuckle transition to, to from VFR to IFR, and, and it still has some stress going into IMC. And yet, with uh, both my boys, Jake and Ben, that have been flying in the front forever and, and also have been just, just used to going into IMC and flying in IMC, I don't think they have that experience. And so I think that when you, when you teach someone at a very young age to get comfortable uh, on instruments, they almost have a different, uh, just general reaction, uh, uh, you know, from it, from a psychological standpoint. Well, the, I think one of the reasons that he did it, albeit that I couldn't see out and he wanted to make some proficient training was, uh, I grew up in Southeast, Southeast of Houston in between Houston and Galveston, the weather, there's a thing in Texas that says, Hey, if you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes, it'll change. And it does, and fog will roll in. There's a period of time uh, during, the, during the year that you'll get nasty ass fog. You'll get a period of time where you'll get thunderstorms. You'll get a period of time where the crosswinds are crazy. So he was exposing me to everything. Uh, he had me probably when I was 15, dual obviously, um, shooting instrument approaches at night in the weather at Shoals Field down in Galveston. 
so you're coming in over the water at night. Uh, and one of the things that he impressed upon me is, you know, you always trust your instruments. You're, you know, you're, you're caged and you're always cross-checking back and forth. But he always taught me one valuable lesson, and that's the lesson that saved my life, is you always listen to the airplane. Airplanes will talk to you. They will tell you exactly, especially if it's a fixed pitch per, uh, airplane, you, you change that pitch just a little bit, you can hear it in the propeller. You go down a little bit, you can hear that change, but you have to be in tune with the airplane. Um, and that's I, how I've always been trained. And I always, even to this day in the 737, I'll hear things before I see them. And the hmm. night that I had to eject, the first thing that I heard that indicated that I had a problem was I could hear the wind rushing over the canopy. And from that, it clued me into going, okay, something's not right here. And what I was seeing in my heads up display and what I was hearing, it didn't make sense. And so I started investigating. Uh, now, your your father has an interesting story um, uh, uh, before we get to the uh, the ejection part. He, that, that ties in very well with what you're talking about, about see the pants. Is, is it correct that he taught himself how to fly? He did. Um, also with a, a how-to book, one of the original how-to books, a book called Stick and Rudder. Uh, you can still get it on Amazon. I actually bought a copy for both of my boys because it, it really truly is the foundation, the fundamentals of flying. And if you, if you can get that down, then everything else builds upon that. So he, he was always infatuated had a passion for flying and he grew up in the depression, didn't have much money. He worked as a farm kid in, in uh, Missouri, Excelsior Springs, Missouri. And he bought this book. I don't know where he got it from, but he bought this book and he read most of it. And through all the money that he had saved with his summer jobs and he had his dad pitch in a little bit, he bought a Fairchild PT-19. Uh, it was out at the airport at the little grass strip in Excelsior Springs and he, some guy was selling it and he was able to buy it for $400. And so he thought that he was doing things, you know, very carefully, very methodically. He learned to start it, he learned to taxi it up around, you know, on the patch. And this particular day, he's gonna do some high speed taxiing and learn to fly the tail up. So he gets it out onto the runway, it's a grass strip, 2000 feet long, he pushes the power up and he's rolling down the runway, gets the tail up and well, now he can see the end of the runway. It before you're just seeing out the side. So he sees the end of the runway and it's rapidly approaching. So he's like, oh my gosh, it startles him. Well, he gets kind of things out of order. Uh, instead of pulling the power back first, he pulls the stick back. And now he becomes a pilot because he's at flying airspeed. And he goes airborne and I tell people he's now a test pilot. And <laughs> he's got the rest of his airborne life to figure out how to get this thing back on the ground. So he gets himself very shallow bank turns, He's just flying it, and he says he, he told me, he says, I had it out about 10 miles. He probably wasn't, but it, to him, it looked like 10 miles. He could just barely see the grass strip off the, off the nose of the airplane. And he starts slowing it down. He's, now this is his first opportunity with slow flight. So he's, he's pulling the power back. He starts to slow it down. He's like, okay, it's still flying okay. He slows it down some more and says, all right, it's still doing okay. But then he, he remembers something in the book about flaps. So he reaches up and he grabs the flap handle and he pulls full flaps, probably 20 knots hot. And of course the airplane lurches up into the sky. That startles him. He puts full flaps back down. Of course the airplane falls out of the sky. He's like, I don't know what these things do, but I'm not touching them again until I figure it out. <laughs> so 
it's aim point and airspeed from that point on straight to the, the edge of the runway and he let, he wheel lands it, gets it on the ground, gets it stopped before the end of the runway. He taxis clear, taxis back to the hangar, gets out. He's so proud of himself. Now you'd have thought that he might've wanted to read the rest of the book or maybe call an instructor and, and get a lesson or two. No, his first phone call was to his best friend in high school and said, hey, I'm a pilot, you wanna go flying? <laughs> and, the, and the friend said, you bet. And so that whole summer, uh, they spent flying all over Missouri, IFR, I follow roads, and water towers, because all the towns had their water tower names painted on the side uh, of the town. And that's how they navigated. And, uh, you know, he'd come into a run, an airport. He, he didn't know anything about pattern ops either. And he'd, he'd blow up the pattern and one particular <laughs> One particular day, he comes in, he, airplanes are scrambling, he comes down, and there was a, a guy from the FAA saying, hey, can I see your certificate? And he was like, um, I don't have it with me. <laughs> so, but they all knew who he was because he was a, he was a football star in Missouri. He was uh, all state in high school, and he played for University of Missouri as a defensive end for four years. Wow, and uh, somehow managed to get away with uh, an awful lot uh, uh, and, and no pilot's license. So uh, he did go on to become a little more formal in his, uh, in his flying education. Was that with the military? It, it was, but the, the rest of the story kind of leads into that because they were flying all that summer, got into the winter winds, and of course that's crosswinds and must gustier. Uh, weather in Missouri can be quite brutal, especially around Kansas City, Excelsior Springs area. And it had snowed and he was coming back in to land. And he always told me, he goes, I don't understand why they put crosswind landings at the back of a book. He goes, that should be the first thing that you're taught. So he's coming into a strong crosswind, gets blown off, gets blown off. Now he's running out of gas. He's got to get this thing on the ground. He's got his friend with him and he gets it on the ground, but he blows off into a snow bank up on the nose it goes. It shatters the wood prop. Neither one of them are hurt. They get out. They pull the the uh, the, uh, the airplane back down and throw, pull it into the hangar. They unbolt the prop. Well, we still have that prop, and that was always it was leaned up against the fireplace at my grandparents' house, and that was always a reminder to us that you do things the right way. You don't just wing it, and it it just left such an impression. Every time I would go to visit my grandparents. Um, I would see that propeller sitting there, um, a, a leather flight helmet, and uh, it, it just that was my life. Wow. And then he, he then, after college, um, was offered uh, a position in the NFL, but turned it down because they didn't make any money, and most of them worked multiple jobs. And uh, so he ended up going into the military because he wanted to fly fighters. He started uh, his flight training as a cadet in uh, Marana and uh, went from there to Williams Air Force Base here in Phoenix and then to he did some gunnery training down in Laughlin Air Force Base in Del Rio, Texas and then came back to Luke Air Force Base where they kept him as an instructor and he was there from 55 to 59 where he got to uh, be a part of training the first cadre the initial cadre of the West German Air Force when it was being built up uh, they sent their top aces from World War II over to Luke. And that was one of the reasons 
that they kept him there as a lieutenant to, to instruct them. The old heads had fought against him in the war and there was quite a bit of animosity. So mm -hmm. they said, oh, hey, lieutenant, we just want you to teach these guys how to uh, fly this F-86. And he's like, oh, okay. So he's in the morning brief, got these three multi-ace German pilots um, and they're pumping to attention and saluting him because he's the instructor. And he's like, well, wait, he goes, look, guys, he goes, I'm going to teach you how to fly this airplane. But he made a deal with them. He says, I want you to teach me how to dogfight. And so they did. So while they were out there learning to fly the airplane, he was learning how to do BFM, basic fighter maneuvers and how they fought during the war. Wow. And do you understand that he went on to uh, uh, to do so, uh, to um, win the, the William Tell? He did. And it. Back in the 70s, 80s, I think the last one was 1986. It may have been a 92, a 90. It might might have been a 90, but I'm not sure. Uh, he was a 1980 William Tell champion, uh, flying the F-101, the Voodoo, and wow. uh, he scored more points than had ever been scored in the history of the meet. And if you ask him, he'll tell you. He said it wasn't me. He said he had a great Wizzo, uh, Dave Harmon was his Wizzo in the back seat. And he said, that makes all the difference. And that Wizzo could do things with that radar. And he goes, I just put the airplane where it needed to be, put the missiles in the air, and everything just worked. Wow. And, and tell people what the William Tell uh, competition actually is. William Tell was a air-to-air -air gunnery meet where units from all over the TAF, the Tactical Air Force, would send their top pilots to to compete against each other to find out who the real top gun of the Air Force was or who the real top gun team, because it wasn't just the pilots or the pilots and whizzos, it wasn't just the air crew. It was also a competition for ground crew, the crew chiefs, the weapons loaders, all a part of that team were competing. And so there were multiple awards given out, not just for the top gun, but it was also for the top team and the top ground guys um, all participated in this. And it was once every four years. And he, because he won, he was invited back as a judge uh, on follow-on uh, events, wow. competitions. So you've got this this background and all of this this kind of uh, experience and life experience that brought you to flying the F-15 Strike Eagle. Tell me about the the Strike Eagle and then uh, how the, your story began uh, of this harrowing incident of having to eject. It was it was a blessing, first of all. Um, I never dreamed that I would get out, uh, get a Strike Eagle out of pilot training. Um, I never dreamed that I would be selected to get to go to NJEPT. NJEPT is uh, in Wichita Falls, Texas. It's Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training Program. That's what NJEPT stands for, where you get to train with all of the, the uh, NATO allies. They have all of their instructors there from uh, Dutch, Germans, uh, Norwegians, you name it. All the NATO countries participate in this. They send their pilots there to be trained. They have their instructors there. Uh, in fact, I didn't even know if I was going to become a fighter pilot because I graduated college in 1986. What happened in 1986? The original Top Gun came out. Here's a boy that wanted to be a fighter pilot from the time he could walk. I've got a picture of me at like three years old walking around in my dad's flight boots with his flight cap on. That was my life. And here it is. I graduated college. I'm trying to get into officer candidate school. 
and I get turned down. I got turned down four times with the Air Force, twice with the Navy, once with the Marines, and by several guard units around the country. They just had more bodies than they had slots. And the other part of it is there was a, a budget cuts. Uh, the Graham-Rudman bill had kicked in at that point, and so they were re reducing the numbers in the military. And now they were just taking the top guys, even though I was a National Honor student, it didn't matter. Uh, it, it, they, I wasn't a National Honor student in engineering or mechanical, aerospace engineering or whatever they wanted. Uh, so I kept getting turned down and turned down and turned down, but I wasn't going to quit. I was always taught quitting is easy, but nothing comes from it. You can just sit down, and but that's where you're going to end up. So I kept fighting and kept fighting. I said, I'm going to make myself marketable. So I went back to school, worked towards a master's, um, went through a two-year ROTC program. And because I already had had 1,000 hours of flying, my private instrument commercial rating, uh, I, my professor of aerospace studies, the colonel, he came in and he said, uh, he said, you, you know, what do you think about applying for NGEPT? And I go, well, I'm not qualified for that. He goes, actually, you're more than qualified. And I said, well, then absolutely, I'd love to apply. And he put my packet in. I was selected. I got to go participate in that. And I, because I had been turned down so many times and because of the work ethic that I had and because of that drive and fight that I had, um, I wasn't going to quit. And I was going to do everything I could to, to be the best. I, I looked at it as this one year is going to determine what I do for the rest of my life. And so I was fortunate to be able to graduate top of my class. And when you graduate number one or number two, you get to choose the aircraft that you want to fly. You fill out a dream sheet. What, what plane number one? What plane number two? And uh, I actually didn't think that I would get a Strike Eagle because they hadn't been given out yet. And so I put it down, and then I put a F-15C model after that, and then I think I put a A-10 after that, and then an F-16 after that. No offense, Viper guys. Um, but uh, I wanted, you know, there's a saying, uh, two is one and one is none. Uh, I wanted two of everything. I wanted two engines, two tails, two wings, and so that's, that's where I went with my thought process. And... I also loved the mission that the Strike Eagle did. It was a dual role, multi-day, night, all-weather fighter bomber, deep interdiction strike aircraft. And I thought that would be a cool mission. And so I put it down and assignment night came. Of course, that's a big party. And uh, I threw, we had a beanbag, like a, you know, when you go to the fair and you shoot the ducks, we had airplanes instead of ducks and we had beanbags instead of a gun because <laughs> uh, you get a bunch of, uh, fighter pilots with a lot of alcohol in them and they'll start shooting each other. So, so I threw the beanbag at the Strike Eagle, it fell and the lights and sirens went off and that was the Jedi one. And uh, <laughs> so that's that's how I found out. Uh, so then I, I along with, um, there was 18 other guys, all top of their class, all just, I mean, walk on water in aviation kind of guys, they were great. Uh, but those were my classmates in RTU. RTU stands for Replacement Training Unit. That's where that's the F-15 training. And it was six months long, and it was held here at Luke Air Force Base uh, before they moved it to North Carolina to Seymour Johnson. And uh, did well there, graduated with the top academic awards with a 99.8% GPA. I missed one question, and it was kind of a silly one. <laughs> It still eats at you, huh? <laughs> it does. 
because it was a computer-based test where you pushed the screen and I fat-fingered it and pushed the wrong part of the screen and it registered an incorrect answer. So anyway. Wow. Okay. So what brought it, what brought you through, uh, you know, what was your experience flying the jet and then what brought you through to that night um, when, uh, when the incident happened? You know, I think um, the, the first time I got in the airplane and I sat there, you're 10 feet in the air. You're, you're looking over this thing and you're on top of this monster. And then when you pull the JFS, jet fuel starter handle, it's like a little lawnmower handle, and you feel that rumble of that engine start and that ramp slam down, you just go, oh my gosh, you are, you are riding the beast. And the amount of power and the capabilities of that aircraft was just phenomenal. It was the newest, most advanced fighter in the world at that time. And the capabilities were incredible. The, the airplane was incredible. And for me, the opportunity to get to fly with a guy in the back seat, some people don't like that. They, you know, you'll get the standard single seat attitude of, oh, I'd rather have the extra gas or whatever. But I don't believe those types of people um, really embrace the crew concept. I did, you know, my best friends are, are the backseaters. I call them the Wizzo Union. You earned your respect in the squadron through the, the Wizzo Union. You know, you could come back into the bar after a flight on Friday night, and the beer lights on, and you're beating your chest about what a great fighter pilot you are. And the Wizzo Union is waving the BS flag in the background. So you're not going to get away with anything. They are going to they are going to humble you, and you have, so you have to earn your respect through those guys. So if they're if they're the guys that want to fly with you, you must be doing something right. And so I really really that for me more than flying the airplane was the opportunity to do that crew coordination, especially in a high dynamic, high G, high speed environment. You're, you know, you're, you're getting to work along with somebody and it's a team, you know, and I've always been into team sports team. Uh, I played baseball all growing up and, you know, that team mentality, that team work ethic, working together. Yeah, it's okay if I, if I do something, I win by myself, but it's more rewarding if I can bring somebody with me and we do it together. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about that. Uh about the ejection to lead us through that story. Well, uh, the ejection happened the night before the Oklahoma City bombing. It was April 18th, 1995. Uh, we stepped to the aircraft. Uh, we First thing we do is we look at the maintenance logs and I open the forms up and I see that this aircraft had ground aborted twice the week before for basically computer issues. Uh, a processor in the computer, we called it the central computer, which was the processor in, inside. Uh, the other part would be the graphics card, which projects what we see on a computer screen. Uh, so the central computer had come up, starred as having not passed its bit. Uh, the display processor, which is a graphics card, had come up having a problem, and the heads-up display also uh, had a problem. So I'm looking at this and I'm talking to the crew chief and I, and I said, so what's the story with this? And he said, well, they couldn't duplicate it. So that's why it says C and D in the forms could not duplicate. And so they're just putting it back in line in service to see if, you know, and fly it until we can figure it out kind of thing. 
And um, so we climbed in the jet, strapped in, started it up. And so on one of your multifunction displays, it starts running through all of its bits. You'll have a flight control bit. You'll have a just a regular general uh, built-in test that checks all the computer systems and everything. And sure enough, the central computer came up starred. The display processor came up starred, meaning it's failed the test. And then the HUD, I'm looking at the HUD, and it failed, just blanked out. So I call out uh, maintenance for Red Ball. That's, uh, <laughs> and, and they show up, and uh, they're plugged into the, the jet, so I'm talking with them and they don't see anything latched on the bit panel underneath the wheel well. And so their advice to me, which I cringe every time I hear some mechanic tell me this, is, hey, just turn it off and turn it back on. That should fix it. No, it doesn't. And no, it didn't. And no, it won't. So if you're flying an electric jet and or electric aircraft that's it's got glass panels, which we all do now, uh, and it's not doing something, don't push it. Don't turn it off and turn it on and call it good and then go fly at night or go fly in the weather. If you're day VFR, fine. That's, that's a completely different story. So over on the left, we have some switches. They're maintenance switches, but basically it removes power from the aircraft and puts it back on. It does. So I flipped those switches, took the power off. It's like Control-Alt-Delete. You're rebooting the system. And it took several times before the system finally came up responding correctly. Uh, I ran some additional bits and then finally we were like, okay, we taxied. We taxied probably 10 minutes late after the other three aircraft had taxied. Uh, we're going up to fly a 2v2 air-to-air -air intercept mission. My wingman was uh, Jeannie Flan, is now Jeannie Levitt. She was the first female fighter pilot in the Air Force. Uh, she's now, I believe, a retired two-star, um, and uh, so she was my wingman that night. My Wizzo was Captain Dennis White. We had flown extensively together, uh, really enjoyed working with him. Uh, we take off. We Our mission tonight, uh, that night, was we're going to meet up with a tanker, a station at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in Goldsboro, North Carolina. The tanker track, it was a tanker track over the top of Cher Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point, about 20... 4,000 feet-ish, and uh, we meet up with that tanker, we cycle through, we get some gas, and then we bolt off into Whiskey 122 Hotel India off the coast of North Carolina. That's where we do our air-to-air -air work so that we can actually train like we fight. We can go supersonic without breaking windows and knocking, you know, China off people's walls and getting calls and, hey, what did you do? Why'd you do it? So we do our go-fast work out there. So we're on our third engagement when the event took place. It was our first one as Red Air. And uh, I've got Genie in fingertip formation. We're gonna come into a predetermined range and we're gonna, it's, it's basically a tactic straight from the former Soviet Union playbook. We're gonna split apart and it's a, for the other guys that are targeting us, it's a targeting and sorting and comm exercise, especially at night, because there's not a lot of aggressive maneuvering uh, at, at night. So. My plan was, I'm at 24,000 feet, my wingman's here, she's gonna do a 90 degree turn, drop down to a lower altitude block, 10 to 14 block, and she's gonna beam for 30 seconds, try to drop off their radar, and then try to get in undetected. I'm just gonna do a, a 360 degree level turn at 24,000 feet, 400 knots, that's the plan. We get into that 
position. I call action. She splits away. That's the last I saw of her that night. I go into my turn, and about 100 degrees through that turn, the lessons from my father when I was little came back. And it, it's like, what, what am I hearing? What I'm hearing and what I'm seeing didn't make sense. I'm hearing this airplane's getting very fast. The Strike Eagle didn't have what you would call a, like an analog ADI like an F-15 has or the F-16 has. This was the newest, most advanced fighter. In fact, they didn't even think they needed an ADI in the dash. They, we did everything off of our HUD, our, our approaches. Uh, the only time we had to have an ADI up, and this was as a result of uh, an accident that killed a pilot. He was actually a flying uh, flight dock, a pilot flight dock, and his WISO was uh, on a loft recovery. They got disoriented and hit the ground. So we had to have a, an ADI up. We bring it up on a color display down between our legs. So when we'd pull up and the bomb would fly, we'd pull 135 to the horizon, 90 degrees of bank to the egress heading, and then we'd drop down, and we had an ADI up for that, and that was it. Brian, can you clarify what an ADI is for some people online that might not know? Uh, over your left shoulder in the background there, it's uh, blue and brown. <laughs> That's an ADI. <laughs> it's an attitude direction indicator. It tells you which way up and down, the number of degrees nose up, the number of degrees nose down, your bank, uh, uh, your roll angle, and your pitch angle. On ours, it also had an airspeed and an altitude container. So. When I thumbed aft on a color display uh, down between my legs, which, oh, by the way, years later, I actually met the man that fought tooth and nail to have that option put in because everybody else was saying, oh, they don't need one. If they want one, they can program it. He goes, no, pilots need an ADI. So I owe my life to that man. And I thumbed back, brought the ADI up, but the problem, there's some more uh, ergonomic problems. Uh, the color display would cast a big colorful glow on that uh, inside of that bubble canopy. So we would turn the brightness and contrast of the display way down such that when I brought it up, I couldn't read the information. So now I took the stick, I moved the stick back and forth. I could feel the airplane roll. I saw the ADI, the pitch letter on the ADI ball roll. Uh, I saw uh, my HUD symbology frozen in a 60 degree right hand turn at 24,000 feet, 400 knots. I buried my head into the attitude indicator roll the pitch ladder straight up and down. So now I know my wings are level with the horizon, but I don't know if I'm upside down or right side up. Once you got below 30 degrees nose low, you lost any reference to the horizon. And the font size on the, the, of the numbers on either side of the pitch ladder that tell you the number of degrees nose low or high you are was so small that at night with the brightness and contrast of the display turned down, I couldn't read the numbers. Um, all of the cues I'm looking for to try to recover the airplane weren't there. By the time I got things oriented and could tell what was going on, uh, we were going through 10,000 feet. We were over, we were supersonic, and um, I was 80 degrees nose low upside down. And at that point, I, I realized that I, there's no way. I, first of all, I didn't know if I could bet my life on what I was seeing. Is this really telling me the truth or is it somewhere in between? I didn't have any way to, to, we're always taught to recognize, confirm, and recover. So I recognized we had a problem, but I didn't really have a way to confirm it. I need two displays to tell me things, and I only had one. This one's always frozen, but this one, this one could be bad too, and I could be pulling myself into a worse situation. And at that point, I said, we've got to go, commanded the ejection, and I pulled the handles. 
So to give you an idea of how long this all took, from the time I realized we had a problem to the time I ejected, five seconds. That was it. So it's something that has to be thought through before you ever step to the airplane. In fact, we brief it before we ever step to the airplane every single time. So it's it can't be a, hmm, I wonder what, well, maybe, in fact, I got out with a third of a second to spare. Had I waited one third of a second longer to pull the handles, I would have impacted the water still in my seat. Wow. As it was, I was, we were traveling uh, 780 knots uh, straight at the water. And anything over 600, you're not supposed to live. In fact, they don't even test the equipment or the seats above 600, primarily because they can't get the rocket sled to go any faster in the length of track that they have available. So they just call it, hey, above 600, the flailing injuries, everything else, the chances of you surviving, not, not very good. The fact that I live through that is it's just the grace of God and answer prayers. Wow. So give us the detail of, of what that survival was once you, once you made that decision. Uh, when I pulled the handles, the canopy actually slides back before it comes up. Just in general, there's hooks that go underneath to lock it in place. So I remember just I remember the flash of light from the sequencer back behind me. And I remember the canopy sliding back. And then I started to see it go. And then the next thing I remember is just getting hit by a blast of wind that's just indescribable. I try to say it's like being hit by a, a freight train. There were upwards of 60 Gs applied to my body when I hit the wind blast. My body went from over 800 miles an hour to hanging under a parachute in just over three seconds. The deceleration forces, they don't know, the engineers at Wright-Patterson came to my hospital, they, everybody wanted to study this, and they were like, well, we have no explanation why, why you're alive. Uh, the force of the wind blast was so great, it ripped my helmet mask off, it broke all the blood vessels in my face, my head swelled the size of a basketball, my lips were the size of cucumbers, my eyeballs, they don't know how they stayed in their sockets, they were completely black from all the blood vessels breaking. We have the metal bayonets that hold our, our uh, mask up. You can see it over the, my shoulder there. Those metal bayonets dug into my cheek as it went up my face before my helmet went off. The life preserver unit has never been tested at that speed and it shredded in the wind. Both arms flailed back, it dislocated both elbows. It separated this shoulder, blew all of my, uh, both my gloves off, my watch off, all the patches were, were gone. Fortunately, this arm, the elbow, popped itself back into place somehow. This arm, however, was blown completely backwards. Uh, the buckle of my harness hit me in the ribs and broke my ribs. Uh, my right leg snapped the ejection handle off. My leg went across the jagged part of the handle that cut right through the G-suit flight suit and gashed the back of my leg open. There's retaining bars or metal bars. They go down and back in a triangle formation, and they're designed to keep your legs in the confines of the seat. We were in an ACES 2 seat, not a Martin Baker, so we don't have leg restraints. So my legs bent those bars out about 60 degrees, and then my leg went over the jagged part of the handle, it went out into the windstream, and my leg from the knee down was just ringing out like a chicken neck. Oof. My left leg, when it couldn't go out any further, it snapped at the bottom half, my foot then went into the wind, and it started spinning. So my leg was broken, my ankle was broken, the, the ligaments that hold your foot in place were all torn, and I'm coming down on the chute. 
I could feel the cold night air on my face. I could hear the parachute ruffling above me. I knew where I was. I was conscious through this whole thing. And I'm like, okay, uh, I got to get in my post-ejection checklist. Canopy, visor, mask, seat kit, LPU, steer, prepare, release. It's been 30 years and I can still regurgitate that. That's how well we're trained. Uh, so canopy, visor, mask, canopy. I, I couldn't even see the parachute camp canopy above me. I wasn't dropping like a rock, so I thought, okay, it's working. But I didn't know if it was damaged, if I had broken lines or panels blown. Visor mask, I didn't have to worry about that step. The whole helmet was gone. Seat kit, when we separate from the seat, the seat falls away. We're actually sitting on uh, one-man one life wrap and two survival kits. That automatically deploys, falls away on a 15-foot lanyard. There's a one-man life raft, another 15-foot lanyard, the rucksack survival kit. The weight of that survival kit pulls a pin on a CO2 cartridge that partially inflates that raft. I reached down with my one functioning arm. I gave it a good yank to make sure that that had functioned. Uh, and then um, I went up to my life preserver. And that's when I looked down and it just looked like shredded rags hanging around my neck. And that's when I'm getting, <laughs> getting a bit concerned now because I'm going into the ocean, uh, I have no flotation device, and I'm hoping that the life raft hanging 15 feet below me that I can't see doesn't look like this. This is so all I, in the air, right? This is all in a funk matter of uh, about 20, 20 to 25 seconds that I did this. Um, I reached down and with my one functioning arm in my teeth, I reeled up that life raft and just at the point I grabbed a hold of the raft, I could tell it was inflated. I went from hanging under the canopy to about 10 feet under the water. It was splashed down. Having a hold of that inflated wrap pulled me back up to the surface, otherwise I would have drowned. I threw my arm over the side of the wrap, my chute caught wind, and now I'm starting to be drugged through the water. The water temperature was uh, in the mid 50s, the sea state was three to five feet, the winds were blowing about 10 knots. Anything below 60 degrees, they, they required us to wear poopy suits, exposure suits. We hated wearing those things, they chafed you, they were irritating, they just cumbersome, hard to get on, hard to get off. So the weather guesser, we always call him the weather guesser, the weather guesser, the weather briefer, he would always just call the weather temperature, or water temperature 60 degrees, so we didn't have to wear them. So I had nothing on other than just a flight suit and t-shirt, that was it. And I'm in extremely cold water. So I'm holding on to this raft, the parachute catches wind, I'm starting to be drugged, I can't let go of the raft, because I'll be 15 feet away from it. So I just have hold on. We have these pyrotechnic devices, they're called C-Wars at the time, now they're called U-Wars, but standard stands for saltwater activated release systems. It's a pyrotechnic device. That, when it senses the salt water, it fires a charge, bang, bang. Sounds like two shotgun shells going off. But I had been drugged probably about 10, 10 yards maybe, and they fired. And my parachute blew away and I came to rest still holding onto this raft. I'm going up and down on the waves. I remember thinking I've got to get out of the water and into this raft. And when I did, I, I tried to kick my legs and I tried to push the raft underneath me. And when I did, the top half of my legs would go one way and the bottom half would go the other. I could feel my foot when I kicked forward, flipping around backwards, and I could feel it flipping around again when I kicked back. And I thought to myself, I, I've got to just try to get into this raft without moving my legs because I didn't want to create more damage than what's already been done. So I'm trying to just horse myself in and, and I can't do it. The, the raft would ride a wave up like this as I'm trying to get in and the raft wanted to flip over on top of me and I would have to re release the raft and let it go. So 
finally, I'm literally to the point of exhaustion. And I thought, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. I have been there. I've been at the door. And uh, I said, if I don't get in this raft, I'll die of hypothermia. I'm bleeding. You can tell everywhere you're bleeding. The back of my leg was gashed open. I'm, you know, chumming for sharks, whatever. And I'm freezing to death. And uh, at that point, uh, again, you never know with what today you might learn that will save your life tomorrow. My grandmother was a big influence in my life. She taught Sunday school for 50 years, three generations of kids. And she says, hey, when you're in a bad situation, just pray about it. Ask for what you need, not for what you want, but what you need. And so I put the, my head down on the raft and I say, God, I said, I can't die tonight. I said, I gotta, I gotta get home. My wife was four months pregnant with our first child. And I kept thinking how selfish of it would be for me to not be there when she delivered. And I didn't want her to get that knock on the door. Uh, so I said, please just help me get in this raft. And so I tried one more time and I just shoved that raft down, but kind of between my legs and I threw my shoulder into it and I rode the wave up. And when I crested the wave and went down the backside, I flipped and rolled into the raft. I'm sitting in the raft the proper way. I'm like, wow, that, that worked. <laughs> And I look down at my leg and my knee is from the lower half of my leg is 90 to the right over the side of the raft. I looked at that, I said, that doesn't look right. And I look at my foot and it's turned around backwards and folded up underneath me. This arm is still bent back like that. And I'm like, all right, dude, you're in a green flight suit. You got arms and legs bent in every direction. You're looking like Gumby out here and you got to straighten this out. So I reached out and I, I grabbed my leg and I heaved it in. It went from 90 right to 90 left. And I thought, well, that doesn't look right either. And so I shoved it down into the base of the raft, pulled my foot out from underneath me, got it pointed in the right direction, brought my arm around and immobilized it, locked it into my harness. Well, now I knew I wasn't structurally fixing anything, but I'm making myself look a heck of a lot better. And this is one of those opportunities where it's, hey, better to look good than to feel good. But I start going into shock. I'm shaking uncontrollably. And I think, oh, my gosh, I'm, I don't want to go unconscious. I need to get to some water and treat myself. So I always kept a water bottle in my G-suit pocket. So between engagements, you, it's like doing high-level aerobics, right? So I pull the water bottle out, take a swig, and go back at it. Well, I always kept that water bottle down there. I unzipped the zipper, stuck my hand down in there. The force of the wind blast, the force of the ejection was so great that the water bottle had been blown right through the bottom of the pocket and was gone. I was kept my wallet in the other pocket in case we had to divert somewhere, I'd have some money. I opened that zipper up, I stuck my hand down in there, my wallet had been blown through the bottom of the pocket, then I started thinking, great, I gotta cancel credit cards, I gotta get a new driver's license. <laughs> All of those <laughs> things you, you were think thinking. about when you lose your wallet is what I was thinking out about 65 miles out off the coast of North Carolina in the Atlantic Ocean at 9.45 at night. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> So I, in my wallet, I always kept my challenge coin, lost that, thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm in so much trouble. And uh, at which point I thought to myself, okay, you know, you're going into shock. You need to get some water. So speaking of, stand by one, um, there's, uh, there's water in the, uh, in the survival kit. So I drug that line in, the rucksack kit was out there in the water somewhere, drug it in with me. It's in a dry, uh, dry kit with a zipper that goes diagonally across 
I have to do everything with my teeth and my one arm. This arm was totally useless. And I opened it up, re reached in, there's their four ounce foil water packs. So I taped two together. So I tore both of them open and drank eight ounces of water real quick. That was like a miracle. I stopped shaking. I could start thinking clearly. I got the nasty salt water taste out of my mouth. And then I thought, okay, I got to start getting busy. When you're in a survival situation, you have a window of time. If you sit on your behind and don't do anything, that window will close and you'll never be able to do anything. We're always taught the survival rule of threes. The survival rule of threes, and this is really important for everybody in a survival situation because this is your roadmap on what you need to accomplish and when you need to do it. Your survival rule of threes say you can only survive about three seconds if you don't have the will to survive. Well, my will is to get home, to see my wife, see my son be born. You can survive about three minutes without air, and that's why I was so uh, worried about getting out of that raft, into that raft and out of that water. If I went unconscious, I would drown. You can survive about three hours in extreme conditions, extreme cold or extreme heat, via, uh, before you die of hypothermia or heat, heat stroke. Uh, you can survive about three days without water, three weeks without food, and three months without human companionship before you're putting smiley faces on volleyballs and calling them Wilson. So, so that's your roadmap. One of the things that people, as soon as they find themselves in a survival situation, where they go wrong or where they go awry is they think, oh, I got to get rescued. The absolute one thing that you have zero control over is when you get rescued. What you have 100% control over is whether you survive. That is what you focus on. You also have to understand that you're never going to be as strong as you are at that moment in time, physically, mentally, emotionally. So take advantage of it. Even though I'm injured badly, I'm still strong and I need to get things done. Your body has a natural way of allowing you to do things for that window. When that window closes, where you are is where you are. So apply the rule of threes, don't worry about rescue, there's very few places that you can go in this world that somebody doesn't know where you are, especially if you've filed a flight plan. Um, but I knew that based on the briefing that the other three jets were going to be doing what they were supposed to be doing. And my job is to stay alive until someone gets out there. In my mind, I had prepared myself to be out there several days. The fact that they got out there within four hours to me, was, oh my gosh, that was a surprise. I never dreamed that they would have made it out there and for me to be able to make contact and vector them to me uh, in that such short of a time. How did they find so, you? I, I actually found them. And this is what I mean about preserving yourself so that you're conscious, you're functioning, you're able to, to I've facilitated my own rescue. The number two, so I was number three of a four ship. Number two, who was targeting us in that exercise, um, he, uh, Chris Azano, he's also a retired two-star now. He was the, uh, the commander at, his last assignment was a commander at uh, Edwards Air Force Base. And I still keep in touch with him. Um, but uh, Pi was his call sign, Pi Zano. And uh, so Pi got a mark point and him, his backseater, uh, Todd Hancock face, they got a mark point, and that mark point from where we dropped off of their radar scope uh, was within a couple miles where I actually was in the water. So they had a kind of a good stake in the ground to start their search from. And so when they got out there, that was close enough for me be, to be able to hear them and see them. 
So I'm in, I had inflated my raft. I'm in this little black cocoon. Uh, got all the water bailed out and I'm really running out of things to do. I'm slapping myself in the face, trying to stay conscious. I heard uh, periodically, I would pull the side of the raft down and I would yell for Dennis. I don't know if you've ever been in the ocean at night, but it's all you hear is waves crashing and wind blowing. So in my mind, I'm having to stay positive. I'm hoping Dennis is doing okay. But then my first sound that I heard was the turboprops of a C-130. And once you've heard them, you never forget them. And I could hear that off in the distance. I peeked the side of the raft down and I could see them flying a track. I could see the position lights and off further in the distance, I could see that they call it a night sun, the searchlight off of an H-60. And I thought, oh my gosh, these guys are here and they're serious about getting me out of here tonight. Now I need to start shifting gears from the survival mode into the rescue mode. But even when you go into that rescue mode, you're still thinking survival. And uh, so all that time, I gotta, I'm got i trying to get a hold of the equipment, the radio flares, things like that, to, to facilitate that. I'm still thinking, hey, don't fall out of your raft. Don't do this, don't do that. You know, uh, I'm still thinking about survival. So everything I needed for rescue is kept in a separate kit. And that was lodged in the center of my back and I couldn't reach it. I had to unhook my leg straps, unhook my chest strap, fish my arm through my harness and pull that harness over the top of my left shoulder until I could grab a hold of the end of the bag with my teeth, hold onto it and work the zipper open. I reached in, I grabbed a, a couple flares, uh, some gyro jets, the uh, PRC-90 radio, and uh, then I started, okay, now I've got what I need to start working this rescue. In training, they tell you to prepare your flares, but don't fire them until instructed to do so. So I wanted to have that done. So those Mark 13 flares, Vietnam era flares, one side has a couple bumps on it. That's the, the night end that produces the flame. The other is a smooth ca uh, cap that produces the orange smoke that you use for daytime operations. So I pulled the cap off and that exposes, it looks like about the same size as a Red Bull can, the little pop tab and a little string lanyard through the tab. You have to pop the tab, break the tab off, hold the flare with one hand, pull the string lanyard with the other. I've got one hand. I was able to pop the tab, break the tab, but now I'm thinking, how am I going to fire this? And I got to thinking, oh, I've watched a lot of John Wayne movies back in the day where the Duke pulls a hand grenade pin and he throws it. And I thought, you got to think things through. That's a hand grenade pin and he's throwing it. I'm pulling a pin that's gonna start shooting phosphorus in my face, not a good idea. So I thought maybe I could stick the flare between my legs and pull it that way. That's really not a good idea because I would burn my hole in my raft or me or you know who knows what. And uh, so I just put the cap back on and I stowed it off to the side and I thought, well, that's not functional. The other thing is we have is the gyro jets, little pin flares, they shoot up you know several hundred feet. I seated one of those and you're supposed to seat it grab with one hand and pull the firing pin down and release. Again, one hand. I didn't have enough strength in this hand to be able to pull the firing, firing pin to initiate that flare. Not functional. So now I'm down to a signal mirror, a whistle, and a radio. At night, I'm down to a radio. So I turned the radio on. When I did, I thought I'd be hear the ELTs. There's an ELT in both seats. I thought I'd hear those pinging, and I didn't. There was no ELT sound. Uh, I thought I'd be hearing Dennis working the rescue. I didn't, nothing. I started transmitting my call sign, SWORD 93, no response. I went to the backup frequency of 2828, still nothing. I went back to Uniform Guard 243 and I just kept trying. I thought, please, you know, I'm thinking my radio doesn't work. Finally, the pilot of the C-130 answered back. 
they know I'm alive. And, and then he goes into an authentication process, at which point I'm thinking, how many people do you think are down here? And why don't you just rescue all of us and worry, we'll work out the pleasantries when I get on board. But there was a reason for that. And the reason was, was my wife had gotten the knock on the door with chaplain, the squadron commander, squadron commander's wife, and a doctor were at my house. And they wanted to make sure that who's who when they make the call. And uh, so they're asking me all these kind of questions. Uh, what's the middle two of the four, last four of your social? What's the color of the truck you drive? What's the name of the street you grew up on? I'm like filling out a security questionnaire for a credit card. And uh, so they said, okay, we know who you are. And I said, great. I said, can you come pick me up? They said, yeah, can you pop a flare? I said, guys, I'm doing good just to talk to you. I said, but I can see you. I said, so let me vector you to me. So I gave them no gyro vectors. Turn left, stop turn. Turn right, stop turn. And I flew the C-130 right overhead. And then I went three, two, one, mark. You just flew over. And they marked my location. They started an orbit around my position, throwing flares out under the water. Now, that does a couple things. One, it contains the search area from the Atlantic Ocean down to this ring of fire. The other thing is it, it does is that you're drifting. You're, you're in the water. That mark point's not going to be good for very long. So you're drifting. Those flares will drift with you. So he then goes up and acts as a high orbit radio relay back to the base. And now I start vectoring the helicopter in. I told the helicopter pilot, I said, look, I'm going to vector you up to, to me, but I'm going to hold you short of my location. I do not want you coming over the top of me. The downwash in an H-60 at low altitude is over 100 miles an hour. If he came over me in that raft, he would either capsize me or flip me. Either way, I'd be dead before they could get to me. So I said, I'm going to hold you short of my location. Do not come over. He agreed to that. I got him in position. I said, there, hold your hover there. I said, now bring your, your night sun on to me. I vectored the night sun on to me. They said, we've got you. I said, you've got me. And I'm going home. I, I'll never forget the picture of that rescue swimmer as he came out of that cabin door with that chem stick on his mask because they lowered him down that cable. He starts his swim towards me, and I'm peeking out of the raft while I've got the radio in one hand, holding the raft down and, and watching this. And I thought, okay, this is really gonna happen. I wanna be ready when he gets here. So I pulled a hook blade razor knife out of my G-suit. I started raking my legs with all the survival equipment lines that I had tangled up in. Started creating, grabbed it with my teeth, created the tension, cut the lines. If it was a piece of equipment that I thought I might need, I stuck it right back where it was. If it was something a bit bugging me, like that K-bar knife, boom, <laughs> overboard that thing went. They've got new, everything is new now. It's completely different. The, the amount of changes as a result of this one accident are astounding. They changed virtually everything. So by the time he came up to me, the last thing I had to do was let the air out of that spray shield and get it down. He came up to the side of me. He introduces himself. I'm Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer Jim Peterson, and I'm here to rescue you. And I said, I'm Air Force Captain Brian Udell, and I'm here to be rescued. Let's go. And so so uh, you can't do anything in the military without a briefing. So he's, he's going to brief me on how this is all going to go. And all I heard was pain, 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 and more pain. He had to get my harness off of me, which meant straightening this arm out. He had to put the life preserver on me, get it inflated and strapped on. Then he's going to get behind me, and he's going to kick me out of this raft where I'd been for the last four hours, happy. And he's going to fully submerge me back in this water, and he's going to drag me about 50 yards outside the rotor wash where they've dropped this litter basket. And it's not a deep well basket. It's a low-profile aluminum stretcher basket that they drop it vertically in the water, then they marry you up to it. So he gets done with this briefing, and I'm thinking, I got a better idea. 
He's like, what's your idea? I said, well, well, you can do all of this stuff here, and then why don't you just go grab that basket, drag it over, and I'll roll into it. He's like, no, it doesn't work that way. I said, okay, you do what you have to do, and I'm going to be the best survivor you've ever seen. And uh, so me, with a lot of answered prayers, uh, asking for strength through this whole mess, uh, I think I was. Uh, he drags me out of that raft, and has he starts swimming. The flippers that these guys used are designed to propel two people. They're huge. So as he's kicking, it was either the flipper that was kicking me or the water being propelled off of it that was kicking my legs. And my legs were sitting there going like this as he's dragging me through the water. He never once knew he was hurting me. I was just praying the whole way across, just give me the strength. I didn't want him to worry. I, I, I'm just... I'm just going to be the best survivor he's ever seen. He gets me up to the litter. He marries me up to it. Now you become a human bobber. And he then, below the water line, reattaching the bottom floats. Then you come up to the surface. And now the waves are coming over the top of you. This whole mess, I'm thinking it can't possibly get any worse. Then the helicopter comes over, and it gets a whole bunch worse. Instead of the waves just crashing over me, now it's sea spray, needles. It's like racing a motorcycle in a saltwater rainstorm. And... I've got cuts all over my face, so I'm stinging, burning, freezing, hurting, all at the same time. He hooks the cable up, up I go. I had my eyes shut tight because the sea spray was pelting me in the eyes. We clear the rotor spray and the basket. I open my eyes to see the, the helicopter above, and the basket is spinning like a top. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not going to clear, <laughs> clear that main gear. About I'm, I'm preparing for impact. The hoist operator reaches out. He grabs the basket. He stops it spinning. He drags me in through the cabin door. And then he disengages it, and he lowers the cable back down, picks a rescue swimmer up. He comes in through the cabin door, and then 25 minutes later, we're at the hospital uh, getting drug off and into, into the hospital. Well, uh, my wife, uh, they had got the call, right? And she, before that call, they were preparing her for the worst. And she asked them, she said, did he, did he get out? Did anybody see anything? And they said, yeah, they, we think that they got out. And she told them, she said, she said, I know him. And I know that um, if he was able to get out of the airplane, he's still alive. And I want to know what to, to, how to prepare myself for what I'm going to see. And so they tried to do their best, but uh, I wasn't human. I did not look human. When they pulled me into the hospital, it wasn't until probably six months ago, after 20, almost 30 years, that my wife told me that you didn't look recognizable. In fact, they wouldn't let me look at myself for a couple of weeks. Um, but uh, I spent three days in intensive care. Um, the next morning, they they put me in the intensive care room, and I kept asking, where's Dennis? Where's Dennis? They haven't found him. They're still looking. And then about noon that day, my wife came in and woke me up, and I said, have they found him? And she said, yes, and he was killed. Um, he was killed instantly when he, he came out of the aircraft. Um, as such, there was a lot of things that have been redesigned. The seat was redesigned. Uh, all the survival equipment was redesigned. The heads-up display was decertified as a sole source instrument flight reference. The ergonomics was changed. They had a software rewrite in the field for a new attitude indicator within two weeks. Um, the fortunate part, the unfortunate part is, is he, he didn't make it. The fortunate part was for, for my part, not that I lived, but I was able to tell them all the things that were wrong and that they were able to fix so that it didn't happen again. 
And if there's one shining light of the whole mess, uh, that that's it. Is they they did get in there and they they fixed everything. They ripped out the central computer. They changed the display processor. Uh, they changed the training rules. Nowadays, at night and in the weather, certain uh, circumstances, they verbalize crew coordination, ADIs up, ADIs up. Uh, so all of those things came from this one accident. And if you allow it to just go away and no lessons learned, then Dennis was lost for nothing. Um, it's it's a tough thing. You never get over it. Um, people ask me, you know, have you watched the movie The Maverick? And what'd you think? And I said, well, to me, it wasn't realistic at all. The only realistic part was the fact that in the character Tom Cruise played, Maverick, you know, he still struggles with the death of his Wizzo. That is a real, you struggle with it. And it, you just, you just learn to live. And you know that as a Christian, um, I'll get to see him again. Wow. Brian, that's, um, that's an incredible story. And, um, uh, I'm I'm sorry you had to live through that, but I'm glad that you did, and 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 uh, all the wonderful things that have come from it, both improvements and what you've done with the rest of your life. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's um, and that's why that's why uh, I do talks. I go around the country. In part, it's it helps me. It's mm. uh, healing for me. Uh, if I can talk about it and um, but also as pilots we learn from others we learn from things that have happened and mistakes and you know hangar talk you know mm. in the military we would convene to the squadron bar the beer light would go on and that's where some of the best lessons learned occurred uh, yeah. in in the bar and uh, so this uh, I thank you for putting this out there, social flight. It's a tool that people can log into and learn from, and the education of aviation then gets passed on. And it's those lessons that people experience that they can educate others with is what's going to prevent accidents from the, in the future. Well, I, I I definitely concur with that, and and thank you for saying that. Um, I I hope that uh, you know obviously we've run out of time very quickly uh, this evening, but I hope you'll come back so that we can talk more because I I'd, I'd like to talk next time about the recovery process and the and and persevering to getting back to really uh, getting to the point of where you are right now. Um, because I think a lot of people struggle with their own personal things yes. from, from medical issues and from other things that, um, that they need to persevere through. And I think you have a lot to offer in that area as well. So I hope you'll come back and join us for that. Absolutely. And one thing I'd, I'd like to leave with people is, you know, we don't, we don't get to choose the day we're going to have. And this is a quote from my grandmother. What we get to choose is how we're going to deal with it. And we should be prepared for whatever the day brings, spiritually, physically, mentally. Uh, every day you get up, it's going to be challenges that you're going to be faced with. 
And it's not the challenge that's going to define the outcome. It's how you choose choose to deal with it. Uh, you can allow it to take you or you can take it. And that's all up to you. And that's I would love the opportunity to come back and share that side of it. Um, I'm going to be heading to Oshkosh for Air Venture this year. So I fly a 1970 backcountry restored, fully restored Super Cub. Uh, so please uh, find me, talk with me. I'm, I'm, it's all about the, the community and the sharing of experiences. So thank you so very much. We absolutely will do that. And uh, also to anyone out there, if you are either your organization or company that you work for, Brian obviously does quite a bit of public speaking, uh, including at corporate events, et cetera. And that is all available at aviationspeakers.com. Is that uh, correct uh, as to where you can be found? That is correct. Uh, uh, Diane Titterington runs that. She's had that bureau for 20 plus years. Uh, she's the wife of Rod Machado, one of your former guests and an outstanding instructor. Uh, so yes, please give her a call if you would like to have me participate in any organizational events. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so, so much, Brian, for joining us this evening on Social Flight Live, and I look forward to having you back to talk about the next chapter. Thank you so very much. Pleasure. Absolutely. Have a good evening. Take care. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We'll be back next week, Tuesday, June 27th, with F-117 stealth fighter pilot Thad Darger. He's got an amazing story about an aircraft that you look at, and it's hard to imagine how that flies, uh, and let alone get an idea what it was like to pilot that amazing aircraft, the F-117 Stealth. We are then off for the week of July 4th and back on Tuesday, July 11th with Daryl Taylor of Air Power, talking all about engines and parts and what is going on with the supply chain. A lot of behind the scenes information available from Daryl Taylor. Until next time, thank you again for joining us and I wish you all blue skies.